Today, I am very excited to be sharing a conversation that I had with my friend, who is an incredible author, Lee Carpenter, about her latest book called Elium. Uh, The New York Times recently reviewed it and called this spy thriller a, quote, unexpectedly moving novel, and it is. The characters are terrific, and it's a real page turner, and I um, highly recommend it. Lee is also the author of two other national best-selling books, 11 Days and Red, White, and Blue. She had an incredible and such a fascinating career before becoming an author, working for John F. Kennedy at George Magazine, Francis Ford Coppola's Literary Magazine, and the Paris Review. She also somehow, in the middle of all that, managed to go to Harvard Business School And she also worked with Beau Biden uh, as his writer and was a close friend of his when he was attorney general in Delaware, which is her home state. Lee is smart, funny, interesting, and really captivating. And I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with her and learned so much. And I know and hope that all of you, my listeners, will enjoy our conversation too. Lee, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you, too. Thank you for having me. Thank you for responding to my begging you to have me on. Oh, my gosh. Stop it. Are you kidding? I'm so, so (laughs) thrilled uh, to see you and so happy to have you and so um, grateful to you for coming all the way down to... Hanger Studios on Lower Fifth Avenue. It's, I feel it's cool. I'm, I'm below, I'm not quite below 14th Street, but below 59th. So um, cool enough. That, that is true. Me too. Me too. Feeling cool about that myself. Um, we've adjusted the lights um, to make them dimmer so that... Um, better for our soul. Yes. Yeah, which we did talk about it's better for our soul. There was some fluorescent lighting going on. Um, but so excited to have Lee Carpenter here, um, who is a... Uh, national best-selling author and has led one of the most fascinating, fascinating careers. It's really interesting and fun for me to prepare for these podcasts where I get to read and learn things about my friends that I didn't know. And I don't know if there's, there's enough time in the daily to get, you know, to talk about all of the incredible things that you've done. But before we talk about your new book, Ilium, which, um, an incredible book and such a great read. I mean, such yeah. an easy, easy, I mean, not in the best way, page turning read. Um, I want to take it back and sort of talk about how you, your journey to becoming an author. You went to Princeton. After Princeton, did you know at Princeton that you wanted to write? Was that where that started? And then what was your first step after, after college? <clears throat> I did not know I wanted to write. If you had asked me then if I would ever write anything, I would say I would maybe write a play. I was a theater kid. I was a theater rat all through high school and college and just spent most of my time in the theater, acting, directing, um, working on other friends' productions. I think I fell in love with literature through the playwrights I loved from Tony Kushner to Tom Stoppard, David Mamet, Carol Churchill. Those were my idols. And then I got out of school. I acted in two really trashy student films and applied to acting grad school programs, um, all of which rejected me. And I didn't, I didn't have the nerve, you know. It was kind of like 
and this sounds crazy in retrospect, but at the time it was kind of like Juilliard or bust because I couldn't envision a life in which I was going out and auditioning and failing. Um, and that absence of tolerance for risk, which 20 years later I developed, um, pushed me into a different path. And it pushed me into a path of, I can see now looking back, wanting to align myself with, with sure things, you know, oh, go work for JF Kennedy Jr. Oh, go, you know, I, I had no tolerance for risk, even though I was constantly, again, looking back, I only see this now, going to work for, for startups, you know, going to work for things that were new, going to work for organizations that were in known industries, but trying to do things differently. You know, George Magazine, where I was an intern, was... Was was that your first... I, I do want to unpack at some point the trashy student films, because I have my own... My, my own library. Of some oh, yeah. You, you probably know one of the directors, I think, is a mutual friend of ours. But um, so, so happy then, to go back to the trashy films. But no, George Magazine was... Yeah, so was, um, was that your first... Um, yeah, that was so my first job out of college. Out of college was that. And how did... Where was George in its... Was it in its infancy? Had it just started? Or was it more established? Where Where was it in its... It was absolutely at the beginning. I had two interests, broadly speaking, like literature and theater and politics, and my mother saw an article in People magazine uh, that JFK Jr. was was starting this magazine that was culture and politics. And she said, you know, this looks right for you. And somehow I got an interview and I got a job as an intern there and knew pretty quickly that it, it wasn't the right place for me, having nothing to do with John Kennedy, who was terrific. Um, but I thought I wanted to be in a more literary environment. And, th and that was, you know, when I transitioned away and went to work on another startup where I was the second hire, which was Zoetrope. But George Magazine was just getting going, and it was um, a really terrific group of people and editors who were so talented. And, um, you know, Gary Ginsburg, who had been one of John Kennedy's really close friends at Brown, uh, came on as a senior editor and, you know, was a mentor for me for the next, you know, decade of my life and career. Um, what was it when you said it, it wasn't sort of literary? Was it the subjects that they were writing about? Was the writing a little bit too, not sensationalized, but more sort of leading kind of in a, more of a kind of a people magazine type of a feel or a Vanity Fair or? If it, if it leaned uh, in a direction stylistically, I, I would say it would be Vanity Fair. No, the writing was terrific. And they got, um, you know, John obviously was a big uh, attraction, and they got absolutely the top writers. I just realized kind of a month or six weeks in that I didn't want to be in a big corporate publishing environment, which that was. I mean, we shared a floor with Elle magazine, and I couldn't see, I couldn't see a path forward for my skill set. And it was right about that time that I learned that Francis Coppola was going to start this literary magazine, and I... Again, I was all the, all the while auditioning, applying to grad schools for acting, and I started... Oh, so this was the same time? Oh, yeah. Okay. Same time. You know, all this, like, day job work was, like, my, you know, my, my hedge against utter chaos and By the way, good for failure. you. Most of us would be in a coffee shop, you know, working on our auditions. And not, I don't know, but I think my parents would have, at, Well, I had to have, like, a day job that felt, like, reputable for my parents, yeah. I think, at the time. Um no, I remember, um, interesting that you say that, because I remember I went into my Juilliard audition, 
and you have to do a classical monologue and a contemporary monologue. And I was doing Juliet uh, for my classical and for my contemporary. I was doing Harper from Angels in America. And, you know, I'd, act, I'd acted in so many plays. This was my great passion in life. I gave it everything. And I remember, and you go into this big cavernous room, there's a group of people standing there. Um, and I remember they said, so why do you have this day job? You've got this, like, day job in public. Like, what are you doing? It was, in fact, the fact that I had that job made it look like I wasn't serious about wanting to be an actor. And they were right. They were probably right looking back. But I remember at the time... That's so interesting. How did they... Know? Was that something that you they had to ask you what, I, I, what you were... I, I think it came up in the, in the verbal interview. So it was like, what are you just, like, walking into Juilliard to audition because you feel like it? You're not doing the work. And they were right. I wasn't. You know, and when I look at my my two my two really closest friends from college who stayed in the theater and are still in the theater and are just killing it and have had careers, they they had a capability to fail and, and tolerate risk that I that I just didn't. I had to have a day job that I could tell people about it, you know, parties. That's that was my own insecurity, I think, uh, at the time. And I look at, I was just saying to, um, an old friend of mine the other day, you know, Bradley Cooper, who I think is exactly our age. Um, and I don't know him, but I admire him. And if you look at his career, I mean, did, did he take 10 years, 15 years, 18 years until right. he became Bradley Cooper? And I, um, not that I would have become Bradley Cooper if I'd stuck stuck it out. But I have such admiration for actors who do that. Um, and I didn't have it in me. I had to have something that felt plausibly successful all the time until I went through a series of losses and developed a tolerance for risk and decided to become, you know, give creativity a shot in a way that I hadn't for a long time. You know, I always had to have someone else on the plank of the ship I wanted to be, you know, like below deck, just working for another well-known person. I didn't want to ever put my neck on the line. And I plausibly did that for a long time. I worked for really great mentors and artists and brands, you know, even the Paris Review, you know, that was about what that, what that brand meant. And it really wasn't until after my father died that I sort of let go of that and stripped all that away and sort of said, you know, okay, I'm going to write a book. What's the worst thing that could happen? It won't sell. The critics will slaughter me. People will think I'm ridiculous. You know, my dad is dead. Like, bring it. You know, I can take it. But I, for a long time, I had a, I, um, I wanted to align myself with things that felt sure, even though you might have at the time said, oh, she's going to work on the launch of this little magazine or she's going to try and save this this literary brand or um, things might have looked risky from the outside, but they felt safe from my where I was looking at them. And there's nothing safe about writing a book. <laughs> there's nothing safe about writing a book because you're putting yourself out there. But, you know, having that experience that you had of wanting to to have that that 
you sort of talk about yourself being below deck and having that that, that person that's sort of out on the, the masthead is is such a I think a shared experience by so many of us in our twenties. I think it's almost a function of that. I mean, there are those there are those Bradley Coopers, right, who can see that this is what their passion is and they're just gonna tolerate the rejection yeah. over and over again. But I think maybe in your case, you had so many interests and so many talents, right? And multiple passions. You talked about your interest in politics, your interest in writing, and your interest in the theater, all these different interests. I think when you have so many passions and so many interests and so many talents that go with that, where you can do so many things, it makes it harder. Yeah. I, I envied people who really knew what they wanted. Right. I wanted to align myself with people who knew what they wanted. But what extraordinary people <laughs> yeah, that you worked for and, you know, that was, you know, at the time of George starting, that was John F. Kennedy, who was so scrutinized for everything that he did, really putting himself out there. I remember um, when I was taking, studying for the bar exam, my father saying, if you fail, you know, everyone, everyone's going to know you failed. I'm like, I am not JFK Jr. It will not be. <laughs> I didn't fail, thank God. But that was in my mind. I kept thinking to myself, that poor guy yeah. failed the bar. Twice. I mean, probably just from the stress of knowing that everyone was going to, you know, be watching how he did. And I, I like to say that George uh, walked so that Morning Joe could run. I mean, George, and and I think he, I think he loved his work there. Um, um, John, and uh, he was, he was, he was such a lovely man. Did but he come idea, on a bicycle? Was he? Did he ride his bike to to work? I think he did. I think the bike sat around the office. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he had a, he had an amazing assistant, Rosemary, who was sort of the, a real lioness and den mother to, to all of us and, and protected him, which was, um, you know, not, no small task. But this marriage of politics and culture, it was like people weren't ready yet. And he had great designers, great writers, terrific editors. People weren't ready. But now on Morning Joe... You can have Chuck Schumer followed by Bradley Cooper. Yeah, that's what George. Well, that is. There's was. so much intersection of that now. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's because our former president was a TV <laughs> a TV yes. show, but there's been, a, you know, a lot of that that overlap. And you're right. He was that. You know, while it seems like that's just a normal type of program to be consuming now. It wasn't then. It wasn't. It was really cutting edge. So he was really trying to do something different. And similarly, Francis Coppola, who believed that so many classic films came from short fiction, he thought, why do I have a bunch of develop? Why would I have a development office in Los Angeles when I could have a literary magazine in New York? Isn't that a better way to be in touch with writers and get stories? And so we would option the stories that we published at Zoetrope, and that was considered at the time sort of morally dirty. Like you're gonna you're gonna option your these pieces of fiction. It was great for the writers because they got paid more, and we commissioned stories. And people didn't like that either in the literary community. Well, along comes Tina Brown with Talk a few years later, right. and they optioned everything that they published. It 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 became de decriminalized, right. you know. So but again, somebody had to, but someone had to be the the first, right? Yeah. And they were the first. So when did how long did he have that literary magazine, Francis Coppola? And when did, or is that still? Is it still around? Is it's it, still around. Wow, it's still around, and it's um. They have a, 
we and we had a different designer for every issue. We had some you know incredible people, and the idea was to have um, short fiction, a republished classic short story, and then and I fought really hard for this, but I don't think they're doing it anymore. A, a one act play um, because it was my dream to get. Um, you know, I was always kind of trying to find my way back to the theater. And I remember we got a one act from Sam Shepard. I remember what it was called, A Trick of the Light, uh, who was totally one of my heroes. And um, and I just Sam thought... Sam Shepard wrote the play? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize he was a playwright in addition yeah. to being an actor. Oh, yes. He is an incredible, incredible playwright. Very experimental um, I'll, uh, I'll send you some of his plays. But, uh, yeah, that was sort of, he sort of, I think, did the acting to pay the bills to be a playwright. But he was very much a person uh, of the theater and uh, obviously just one of those uh, uniquely cool people. You know, the, I don't use the word cool a lot, but Sam Shepard was cool. Yeah, and very easy on the eyes. I mean, the whole, oh, thing, yes. the whole, thing, the whole thing works. <laughs> yeah, he... Um, the playwright thing is just new information that I have about he, Sam to know. Yeah, and you... And, continues. And you'd like his plays, and I, I only met him once when we were working on that, but um, if you watch uh, The Right Stuff, in which he plays Chuck Yeager, yeah. the, the pilot, that, that role seemed to be really him. He was sort of the Chuck Yeager of the of the theater world in many ways. He was not afraid to go really fast and not play by any rules. But I'll, I'll send you some yeah, of his plays. I, I can't. So that was, you know, that was an interesting experience. And, and then um, how did you, how and when did you transition from that literary magazine to the Paris Review? And somewhere you went to Harvard Business School in between. Yeah, I think, I think the was reason... That, was that a night job while you had another day yeah. job? Or what was the... How, um, I don't know. You know, I, I'm always looking into the, you know, apocalyptic, what if I don't make money? What if I don't succeed? You know, like like many of us. And I, and I, I think having ha worked on George, worked on Zoetrope, and then I took another job working on another startup while I was still at Zoetrope, I started to think maybe, maybe what I'm meant to do is start something maybe I'm meant to start my own, you know, literary magazine. That was kind of my thinking at like 25, 26. And I thought, well, what do I, how do I, what, what is, what is that? I didn't grow up around business people. My dad was a lawyer. Um, and my mom worked in politics and I didn't know, I, I'd never heard of like an entrepreneur or I, had, I hadn't met a lot of entrepreneurs. So I thought maybe I'll just, you know, apply to business school. HBS, I mean, it's great, but not but. It's great and it's probably, and I don't say this with any false humility, the only business school I could have gotten into because it's a school that is less interested in your uh, GMAT score than in your leadership kind of dream for yourself. Right. HBS wants the story. They also take, my husband went there oh. too, and they take a lot of, he had a lot of um, people from the military. Yes. You know, in, in his section he himself was an entrepreneur in in a very sort of obscure business but had so it, it, you're exactly right I think that they really look to create kind of a, a really diverse 
yes. group of people with different experiences so they can bring the, that experience, you know. My, like three of my closest friends there were a Catholic priest who'd been sent there by Notre Dame, uh, a guy who'd run communications for the Carolina Panthers, and a woman who was coming from the film business. None of us had ever opened Excel or discounted a cash flow or whatever. So, yeah, HBS uh, took me and... Um, and it was it was coming out of there that I that I went to the Paris Review, which was. Um, and what was that experience like? That was um, George Plimpton is there. What, no, what he, year had, is he, this? he had died, and and the reason I went there was that George had died, and they were trying to f- the board of the magazine. It, it had become a five hundred one c three, and the and the board. Um, so I really went to. I was really hired by the board, who at that t- at that time was run by. Um, a guy called Tom Ginsburg and a guy called Terry uh, McDonald. And they were trying to figure out what it was. Is it an ongoing concern? Is it a brand? I remember I had a sister-in-law at the time who was working at Condé Nast, and she said, oh, you know, Lee, this will be good training for you. Um, you've worked in such small uh, offices. And she said, now you'll get to manage an entity that probably has uh, you know, 90 to 100,000 subscribers. And I got there, and there were less than 2,000 subscribers. And what I realized when I got there was that the brand, that all of the, you know, what we would, what business school right. grads should call equity, um, was, was really in the brand and less so in the business, even though there was a terrific team of editors there. I was also walking less into a business than I was walking into a family in mourning. You know, they had lost their... Um, as I like to say about George Plimpton, he was captain, owner, and quarterback all in one. He right. he was it, and um, and was the, that the, part of the reason why their subscri- their number of subscribers had dropped so significantly? Were they not sort of watching the business part of it because they? I, I don't know how that how that aligns with with yeah. their drop and and um, subscribers, but yeah, I don't know. I think that the dream of what the review was had always been a bit larger than than the reality of the business of a literary magazine. Right. By the way, any literary magazine, um, they're, they're not economic engines and they're not meant to be. I always say that the Paris Review was kind of like uh, the place where you go to learn who the future generation of writers and editors will be. It's like before you graduate and get published in the New Yorker, you get published in the Paris right. Review. Um, it was really a place where the editors found the best young new writers. It was it was a sort of an it, incubator. It, yeah, and 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 it and it had and has real real value. I mean, I'm not in touch with the folks there anymore, but it was it was terrific to be there, but like I said, the the emotional environment there was pretty complicated because it was you know, these were people who had lost, really lost their leader. And my tenure there was short because I was there for about two years. Uh, and then a new, and then a new editor came on and I sort of, um, well, he didn't need me. And, uh, and I was, I was ready to go. It was a pretty brutal experience, actually. Is that when you... It sounded great, but it wasn't a lot of fun. What? <laughs> Sometimes there's... Lots of things like that. But you, yeah. you know, I'll tell you something. Um, there's a, a very iconic literary agent called Mort Janklow, 
uh, who's no longer alive. And I didn't know more Chanklo. But when I took the job at the Parish Review, I got a, probably was an email at the time, totally out of the blue, from Mort Janklow, which is like, you know, it might as well have been a letter totally out of the blue from Mick Jagger. You know, what, why does Mort, how does Mort Janklow know what my email address is? And it said, dearly, you know, you don't know me, but, uh, you know, I, I know a bit about publishing, and I, I just want to give you a, um, he said something like, you know, affectionate warning you may think, this is my recollection of the email, you may think that you're going to run a very storied literary magazine and that it's going to be this very dynamic, interesting experience. But what I'm telling you is you are taking a fundraising job for something that's going to be very, very difficult to raise money for. And I had no idea what he was talking about, Leslie. I really didn't, I didn't understand why he wrote it or what he really meant. But again, always looking back, um, you see things more clearly. He was 100% right. And it was because he knew, he knew what the literary magazine business was much, much better than I had, even though I'd worked in it a bit. Um, and it was, uh, you know, there were a lot of big personalities involved in that magazine. And I think I just got a little lost, uh, lost there. And it was, I mean, great great personalities, but it was, uh, there was something sacred about it at the time. And everybody was worried about, um, taking a wrong step. I remember the first issue we published I after think I about got also there. also worried about paying the electric bell. I yeah. mean, oh, I, yeah. would, I mean, that was, you know, you know I, that, and that always adds another dynamic I, to the, I remember back to, you know, um, not to keep coming back to the Kennedys, but I found, you know, in a stack in the basement, this letter that, um, Jackie Kennedy had written to um, George Plimpton, and it was uh, it was a beautiful letter. And I called the then head of the board, Tom Ginsburg, and I said, "Tom, Tom, oh my God, I, I found this letter, um, you know, from Mrs. Kennedy to to George." And he said, "Oh, Lee, we all have one of those." <laughs> you know what I mean? So there was that story says something about what it was like there at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was like it, it needed to be scrappier, but it was beneath the brand to be scrappy. So, but they've, you know, they've continued on and done well and had great editors and, and people still feel really a lot of love for it. You had that experience there. And was that the time when you thought, I think I'm ready to try something new. And you had mentioned earlier when you were starting out, you know, with your internship at George, that politics was also an interest you sort of thought maybe I'll just take a step back and think about that field as a possible next career step because you then ended up working with Bo Biden in Delaware, right? Was that following that? Yeah, so I'm from Delaware um, and probably always um, up to today. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get back there and live there. Uh, I love I love Delaware and um yeah, I left the Parish Review. I had a newborn. My father died when my now oldest son was five months old. And um, I don't really want to like whine about it, but the Parish Review was, was a really bad experience for me and um, kind of turned me off that whole scene. I, I really wanted to just, I was tired of the temperamental 
elements of that, what I perceived to be that world. So I sort of said, well, maybe I'll move home and, uh, and go back to my roots, so to speak. Um, yeah, and Bo at that time was the attorney general for the state of Delaware. And, you know, I'd grown up around him. He married one of my oldest friends. And uh, I sort of went to her and him and said, I'd love, you know, how can I be additive? He, he was going to run for governor. Uh, and I thought maybe I could start by writing some speeches. And then it evolved that, you know, he, like, like most politicians, he, he wanted to write a book and would need a book. And I thought, well, that's, maybe he and I can collaborate that on that together. And so we started working on that. We had a publisher. We had an agent. What did he, was it the, sort of the, the story of his life or was he, did he want to write a book about policy? No, or did you not I, get that far? I, well, I can't believe we're I'm now coming yet a fourth or fifth time back to the Kennedys. I said to Bo, I think the book that you should write is a complete, Your own unabashed ripoff of Profiles in Courage. <laughs> but because you um, are a lawyer and have served as a jag in Iraq, I think it should be Profiles in Justice. So let's look at, you know, Profiles in Courage is a, is a very simple book. I mean, it's a book that is that a sixth grader can read and by design. Um, and it's a series of real, really vignettes, as you may know, of moments when members of Congress made a courageous right. decision. So I, I thought it was easily transferable to legal history. And let's look at moments where someone did something courageous that resulted in the law changing. And uh, he liked that idea, although I will say, and I still have this <clears throat> letter he wrote me framed at home, he sort of, one day we were well into writing the book and he sort of said, you know, I think, I think well, we don't have the right idea. I think I want to do something about service. I think I want to do something about the military. I think there's been so much talk about the greatest generation, but I think our generation is the greatest generation. I think every generation who serves is the greatest generation. And we started iterating on that a little bit. Um, and then Bo, uh, got sick and, um, and during how, that how period old, of time, how old was he? I mean, at that time, I mean, it's just so forty-three. It's so unreal and so terrible. I can't imagine being a close friend of his and a colleague of his and um, watching, you know, him and his family go through that. Um, you know, they they are also they're much stronger and more graceful than I would have been in a similar circumstance. Um, uh, incredible strength in that family. So, um, so I started writing a book on my own, uh, which was really a sort of looking for my father book. I was trying to understand what is this thing that's special operations? Um, what is the military back to, um, having moved away from, uh, I want to be aligned with a brand. I want to be aligned with a well-known person. I want to be aligned with an Ivy League institution. I had really broken somewhere along the way. I think because of the death of my father, I I was done with that. I well, just wanted to. I wanted to understand who my father was. That was the preoccupying, organizing principle of of my life in those years. In addition to becoming a mother, and the way I did that was to start to write this story, which, which eventually became 11 Days, and that was published in 
June of uh, 2013, and, and that August, um, two things happened. Bo got the, the cancer diagnosis, and my college roommate died that August. Um, and again, it was like real stripping away of all the things that I had thought were my ambitions, thought equated with success. I so wish I could have found that sense of purpose when I was 21, but I, I took until I was 39. Um, and then I just thought, you know what, I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to write and I'm going to start to do that. And, um, well, do you think part of that having experienced that loss of your father and then your college roommate and then having your friend fighting for his life, you know, somewhere the thought must have been, if not now, then when? And what is it all for? What does it all mean? And if this is something I'm interested in and passionate about, there's no time better than now, right, to take that risk. Suddenly every other thing that I'd done up until that time just seemed ridiculous. I mean, really seemed in the service of something uh, really not meaningful, which is not to say that writing a book was going to have any meaning at all. I didn't know what it was going to be or not be, uh, but it felt like, again, because I'd been in this kind of creative community in college and I'd seen so many of my friends just go out there and be creative people and take risks. And, you know, 20 years later, almost 20 years later, I'm like, okay, I'm not ready. To, I'm now ready to do that. Um, and Joan Didion famously uh, kind of started out wanting to be an actress and then pivoted to being a writer. And she has a quote. It's actually from one of her Parish Review interviews in which she says she realized at a certain point that acting and writing were actually very, very similar things. The difference being that as an actor, at least when you're starting out, you you need other people to help you get the thing going. And as a writer, you can just sit in a room and do it on your own. And I think there was a part of me that also probably was retreating and, and, and wanted that kind of solitary time too. And that was the beginning. I, I didn't know it at the time, but now 10 years later, that was the beginning of what became my career, which is just, I think now I'm not, I'm not making any changes now. Well, I don't, nobody wants you to. I mean, we <laughs> so now I'm standing, doing now exactly I'm stuck. what you should be doing. So you, you were talking about researching and thinking about military history and operations, and you, you were talking about that in relation to your dad. Was he in the military? And, yes. Okay. And we were talking earlier about a mutual friend of ours and how you had gotten to know her by researching Washington in the 40s yes, and 50s. Yes. So, all three of your books have an element. I have not read Eleven Days or Red, White, and Blue, but I, from what I understand, they're spy. You know, has some espionage um, uh, in there. Obviously, this interest is personal for you. It sounds like I don't know if your father was in the CIA or if you suspect he might have been, or you have family friends who were. But you know, you have this interest, and then you've you've written about it in three different books. How did you do? You know, do that research and. What have you found out? Because you, particularly in, in Ilium, which we'll get to talk to you about in a bit, you know, the, the whole process of identifying an asset, bringing an asset in, and all of that is so fascinating. And is that really, is that based on either conversations you had or research that you did? And Well, my father, um, my parents had a big age difference. 
And my father had a whole career in military intelligence before, um, before he, he, he met my mother and uh, long before I was born. He was in World War II and kind of stayed um, in military intelligence up to through. I found something recently that was um, a, a photograph of him in a, in a training group uh, not long before the Korean War. But he, so the CIA really grew out of uh, what we now call the CIA grew out of um, the OSS, which was a group in World War II. And my father, as far as I know, though he never talked about it, um, worked on several missions that were sort of joint missions with OSS or actually part of OSS. What, he, what did OSS stand for? Organization of Secret Services. I can't okay. believe I can't even remember no, that No, no, gosh. Um, I mean, I, this is why we have I have iPhones. So <laughs> we can look it up. I'm embarrassed. I can't even. Uh, no, no, my God. That, the I OSS not. and the OSS um, symbol, the symbol of the OSS is still the symbol now of certain uh, special mission units. Are you looking it up? I am, but you keep talking. So the OSS, the, the person who gets a lot of, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Good Shepherd, but The Good Shepherd, written by a terrific writer. The Office of Strategic Services. Office, Office of Strategic Services. There, we, there, we also there. Ma- there are also many anagrams. We were there. Um, but, right, which sounds like a lot of nothing, right? right? I mean, there's, a, so there's how, an organization so that, now. That was, an organi- that was in existence before World War II? Or did that, did that, that come that, out of World War II and that, the CIA came out of that? Yeah. OSS was a World War II entity and the guys who were in OSS then were really the architects of what we now call the Central Intelligence Agency because we didn't have in in America, we didn't have a foreign intelligence service. Most uh, nations have domestic intelligence services and foreign intelligence services. So our domestic intelligence service is FBI. Right. Our foreign intelligence service is CIA. Israel's domestic intelligence service is the Shin Bet. Their foreign intelligence service is the Mossad. The UK, domestic intelligence, MI5, foreign intelligence, MI6. We didn't, you know, we were we were just being born as the America we know America to be now at that time, but we had no foreign intelligence. And the FBI, as you know, if you've seen Killers of the Flower Moon, kind of grew out of um, the, something that was going on with the, with the Osage Nation. But that's another story. Um, so a group of people who had been involved with the OSS, which was now we would look back on them and call them you know, a special mission unit, gave birth to the CIA. And now you have inside all the different branches of the military, you have these sort of um, special operations units. So inside... The Marines, you have something called MARSOC. Inside the Navy, you have the Navy SEAL teams, Naval Special Warfare, which most people are more familiar with. Inside the Army, you have, you know, Delta. Um, and then those groups, in turn, often feed into uh, an entity inside the CIA today, which is called Ground Branch, Sea Branch, and Air Branch. But I but anyway. I didn't realize that there was, co- there was that kind of coordination. I assumed that the CIA was sort of its own entity, but it's actually... Pulling is it sort of on the ground intelligence from? It is. I'm a little over my skis here. I hope nobody's listening from Ground Branch. <laughs> um, but 
No, only inside the CIA they have a paramilitary unit, and that's where they bring folks from the military. Okay. But there are lots of people who work at the agency who are analysts and case officers okay. and, and, and do not have to be military veterans. They just are veterans of uh, you know, learning at the farm, which is the sort of school inside the CIA. And I wrote 11 Days, which was very much situated in the Navy SEAL teams and, and in the military. And after I wrote that, I wanted to shift and really look at CIA. Red, White, Blue is really just about the agency, about China ops inside the agency, about the techniques of being a spy. In fact, I think it didn't work so well as a book in certain ways because I, I myself was so fascinated by all the spy craft. When I turned in that book to my editor, she sort of said, like, there's way too much technical stuff in here. It's boring. But I thought it was all very interesting. The cycle of recruiting an asset, which is called, you know, spotting, developing, assessing, um, all of that technique I thought was, was very interesting. So my dad never worked for CIA. Um, but you have intelligence agencies inside all the military branches also. Okay. So when you look at the world of U.S. intelligence, I think you really have to look at it as kind of, you know, the same way you would look at football in America, you know, where you have like field teams, you have college teams, you have uh, NFL teams, and you have, you know, it's like every time you think you're in the room where it happens, like there's a door in the corner, and that's really the room where it happens. And so inside, it's really, insofar as I've been able to glean from my research and my friends who work in that world, there's a very much a Russian nesting doll quality to the organization where there are um, increasingly elite or increasingly covert is maybe a better word um, groups inside the lar the larger groups and that you know that's one of the things that makes it interesting and then by the time I by the time let's just to situate it in time by the time COVID came around I was red white blue had been optioned by a company called the Ink Factory and in Ink Factory is a production company in LA and London run by two brothers, Stephen and Simon Corn Cornwell. And their father, David Cornwell, is better known as John Le Carre. Le Carre was his pen name. So these brothers run the film and television production company that adapts all of the Le Carre IP. So if you've seen The Night Manager yep. or The Little Drummer yep. Girl, if yep. you've seen Constant Gardener, or um, they are producers on all of those projects. And they had uh, a incredible woman who now runs the company, Michelle Wolkoff, found Red, White, Blue. And so I started working with them in COVID. And working with Stephen Cornwell was like a masterclass in John le Carre. He, he talked about his father um, quite a bit and obviously had grown up learning a lot about the architecture of classic espionage. Really, le Carre, along with Graham Greene, is really considered... The, the master of, you know, the Cold War espionage genre. He himself worked at MI6. And I started reading all the Le Carre books, which I'd never read, which you can easily grow up in the U.S. and never bump into Le Carre. He's not on many syllabuses, syllabi. Um, and I started watching all the adaptations, and I saw that he it was kind of like I was reverse engineering what, what is Le Carre really doing in each one of these books. I think he's one of the great writers, uh, full stop of the 20th century, leaving espionage aside entirely. He's a huge 
master of human emotion. And he takes on really big topics and he writes great love stories. And the one book that really like stopped me in my tracks, um, as a reader and a lover of stories was a book called the little drummer girl, which is sort of his middle East book. And it's the story of a Mossad, uh, operation to recruit a young British woman to, um, be, be part of, be part of a mission. And Charlie, the young woman in that book is, is, is often cited as one of Lucario's great, if, if not his greatest uh, female characters. And she kind of stayed with me and, the idea of a woman recruited into something, maybe even against her will, was was one of the seeds. Uh, there were two or three seeds that gave birth to Ilium, but that was definitely one of them. And so I had done so much research on spycraft for my last book, Red, White, Blue. And with Ilium, I was, I, I think, able to let go of that and just wanted just wanted to tell a terrific story and let my, you know, the knowledge that I had hopefully inform pieces of that story. But I'm not trying to tell you on every page how much I know about uh, espionage. But the narrator, she, and I'm wondering if you found this in your research to be true, it's, she wanted, she was constantly admiring the garden of this house where her mother yeah. worked, she said as an assistant, but she was really a housekeeper. And it was sort of her always wanting to have another life outside yes. of her own. And then of course the person who buys the house and then, you know, I don't want to ruin the, the story for the, for the listeners, but it's a, ter- it's a really terrific story. Did you find that to be true? Are assets, are they people who are looking for, um, I guess it makes sense in a way because you're, you have to kind of apply a new identity to these people that they're lost looking for another, another life or, you know, the romance or the excitement or the, what the wonder of what's behind the door was kind of what her focus was. And it made for an easy, it sounds like an easy mark in this book, sort of identifying her as a potential asset. Did you find that to be true? I guess you wouldn't be able to know. Well, I, or is there a formula? I mean, I was told uh, that, repeatedly, that people spy for one of a few reasons. Money. You know, you can, we, we, we paid a lot of money to, re- to recruit a lot of assets in the Middle East over the last 20 years. Money, ideology, um, if they really right. believe in the cause, um, or ego. You know, because it might be cool to, you know, right. brag to your friends at the, at the Brook Club that you, you know, went on a Mossad operation. I don't know, but that money, ideology, and ego were the three things that were always, um, you know, that, that comes up a lot. Then I was told, and this is when I was working on my last book, uh, a case officer I was interviewing said, you know, Lee, asking someone to spy for their country is like asking someone to marry you in this way. You only want to ask the question once, ideally, and you only want to ask when you know the answer is yes. And it was at that point that I sort of put those two things together, like money, ideology, ego, and it's like asking someone to marry you. And I thought, wait, what if it's not money, ideology, or ego? What if it's love? What if the person who asks you to spy is your husband? How could you say no to that? Particularly if it's someone you 
really love. I mean, we all really love, admire. He's older. Yeah. He was showing her this whole other, yeah. this whole other life. Um, <clears throat> she wanted to uh, hold on to him and the life that he had introduced her into, and so I thought. And 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 the book, you know, for 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 anyone who who who's, who reads it. Um, you realize at the end of the book exactly why she, the truth of why she was chosen, but I thought it was plausible to uh, to get her by way of a romance, which also feels a bit sinister, but totally plausible. And if you look at the, I mean, the, the little drummer girl does something a bit different, but in the little drummer girl, the handler and the asset have to have sort of a fake affair, um, and it's uh, little carried does that very beautifully but I wanted this to feel like a real love affair and she has to because she has to plausibly appear to be the wife of this guy when she arrives into the world of this French Russian family so they set her up with a series of experiences that she's actually had she can walk in and talk to that French family about her wedding in Mallorca or um you know, because for someone who's not a trained actress, you have to give them the experiences. So they're they able then, to speak about yeah. it truthfully. How did you, I mean, I love all the characters and Raja and, and Marcus. And did you draw from, I'm always so fascinated by how writers can create these characters. And I, Tina Fey's daughter was in our daughter's class in preschool and I won't get into too many specifics but we had one of Emmeline our daughter's birthday parties a friend of mine went up and introduced herself she's got a really particular name a month later I'm watching 30 Rock Tina Fey <laughs> said I'm writing my my memoirs and she was you know under the pseudonym that was oh the same God. name and then we one night had a, a karaoke night with that all is the parents amazing. and this one dad in our class who's pretty buttoned up, just kind of really let loose, <laughs> let loose. And there was a Mick Jagger in there that no one, no one knew about. And then there, fast forward like a month later, there's an SNL skit with Mick Jagger himself imitating Mick Jagger. I mean, it, who was a businessman. Oh so anyway, she clearly you know, pulls from her life, pulls from her life. And so, um, which, you know, obviously there's <laughs> at some point she is such a prolific writer and you're writing these sketches, you have to do that. But in your case, with these characters and, you know, the oligarch and where do you draw your inspiration from for from characters? And do you does it come to you as you go along or is your process that you you have these characters as a puzzle and you, you know you want to fit them in at some point or what is your process like? You know, I, I, I've so often qu quoted um, Aaron Sorkin, who, when asked how long it takes him to write a screenplay, Sorkin says, I hope I'm not misquoting him, well, it takes me about 24 months, but 22 of those months just looks like me lying on the couch watching ESPN. <laughs> I do a lot of watching ESPN. Um, these characters came from, again, it's, I, I don't really know what my process is, but I had seen a series of paintings by Cy Twombly called 50 Days at Iliam, I-L-I-A-M. And it's Twombly's depiction of the Trojan War. And they are incredibly beautiful. And I remember 
looking at those paintings and thinking, even if I was uh, wealthy enough to buy all of these Twombly's, I love Cy Twombly, would I want a series of paintings depicting this brutal war, even though they're very beautiful? Who would want? Who could afford a bunch of Twombly's and want to look at these war, this war story? And then I thought a very wealthy old warrior, an older warrior who wants to remember the emotions of being a young warrior. And out of that kind of grew this character of Edward, who's the, who's the oligarch in the book, oligarch, former intelligence officer. Uh, and I knew, because again, if, if, I don't know if you looked at the author's note in the book, but CIA had a station chief in Beirut in the 80s called William Buckley. And Buckley was uh, kidnapped and assassinated. And almost 30 years later, there was a car bombing in Damascus, and a, the leader of Hezbollah, Imad Magnia, was, was killed in that car bombing. Well, Magnia, when he was a young, very uh, skilled uh, terrorist, um, hero, terrorists to one side is usually, you know, a hero to the other side, he was behind the kidnapping and assassination of Bill Buckley. And I couldn't get over that idea of what happened in the interim between those two things and were the friends of Buckley somehow involved in that car bombing? I don't know if they were, but out of that came kind of the broader architecture of what Ilium is, which is a an operation that takes right. time. The idea that there were these young guys running around Beirut who were best friends and one of them was assassinated and that they took their time to get revenge and the last piece of the puzzle in order to get that revenge was finding this young woman. And that was kind of, so I had like the Twombly's and the oligarch and I had this long operation and those two things kind of came together. And I think the characters just, uh, you know, you, you draw, you do draw on the emotions of things you've experienced or people you've known, but none of them are, are, are based on anyone. I mean, again, I, you know, my mother married a much older man and I always, I have tried to imagine what that, when I was growing up, they were just my parents. I didn't think about their age difference. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've wondered what that felt like for her and um, how that might have made her feel safe. Uh, and I think that the young woman, my narrator, ironically is made to feel very safe in this love affair which ironically, you know, drops her into a very dangerous environment. So as I was reading it, it was hard to not think about how it would play out on screen. So my next question for you is, you know, what's next for Ilium? I, there has to be a great interest in developing this book. Can you talk? I, 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 can yes. You well, now that I know you're also a producer, I want to hear. Yeah. You, I want to hear your vision. No, but, no. Um, I, so, Ilium was optioned by a Mexican filmmaker called Alfonso Cuarón. Okay. Um, and is an Apple project, so he's got a deal at Apple. So it's, so it's uh, yes, it's That's it's so exciting. It's slouching its way oh. towards Bethlehem. It's a uh, no. Listen, it's um, it's it's a great dream that a book be adapted and thereby reach 
a broader audience. I also think that adaptation is such an art form and I really admire it when it's, when it's done well. And, uh, and hopefully Elaine will give, give everything that uh, is needed by the, by the writer. Well, I was going to say you gave him such incredible, incredible material to work with. Thank you. Um, so what's next for Lee Carpenter? I mean, I can't, I can't wait for the next book or the next project. Thank you. Um, Do you have something in, in, by the way, what about you writing a book about the Buckley is set. Well, I guess that is Elium. I was going to uh, say. <laughs> no, I will. Um, yeah, I still want to write my Washington book. So I will, um, I'll keep dreaming about that. I'm writing a play. Finally, it's taken me a long time again to like do things I was too afraid to do at 21. So I'm writing a play and, uh, yeah. And, you know, just banging my head against the wall with a couple other things, but there'll be, there'll be another book. Oh, well, I am so, so excited for you and thrilled um, for you about the success of Elium and all your other books and all your other projects. And it's so great to see you. And I'm so grateful to you for coming and taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much. Um, I'm such a fan of this podcast. I'm so glad I found it. And um, thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, Lee, thank you for coming. A huge thank you, big, big thank you to Lee Carpenter for joining us. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening. And as always, thank you for joining the interview. If you enjoyed this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on the interview with Leslie Heaney. A new podcast uh, comes out every Wednesday. 